when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Those words come from the pen of an American novelist, Wendell Berry, in a poem entitled, The Peace of Wild Things. Here, Berry gives a vision for dealing with the personal stress and cultural despair all around us by spending more time in God's green and wild creation. Where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water. He urges us to stand in the sun under the day blind stars and consider the creatures who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. Wendell Berry, who is himself an environmentalist and a farmer, as well as a Christian, suggests that part of what's causing anxiety for modern people is our sense of alienation from nature. Perhaps, he suggests, we would be less stressed out, less prone to depression, more resilient in the face of personal attacks, and less vulnerable to false narratives if we would re-engage with what the theologians called the book of creation. Now, the weather is changing in Tallahassee right now, and uh, praise the Lord. Perhaps some of us would be in a healthy place if we spent more time outside, amen? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, there's a revelatory quality to nature. Those of you who like to work in a garden, those of you who like to fish, you could testify to this. Nature clarifies truth. Think of all the ways that Jesus used trees and seeds and farming and birds to clarify the message of the kingdom of God. The book of creation speaks a powerful word to our anxious hearts. But there's another book. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's another book. There's another book that Christians must turn to as well. And the medicine that offers is much more precise. That is, of course, the book of Scripture. That same psalm, Psalm 19, declares the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In fact, King David spends even more time singing the praises of the word of God than he did on the book of creation. He declares that God's word is sweeter than honey, than drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, he says, by them, by your commands, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
So having begun this morning with a few reflections on the book of creation, let us now turn to the book of Scripture. Because the wood drake and the great heron, they might help to calm us down. But what does the word of God have to teach us about dealing with stress and deadlines and personal attacks and false narratives? This is what Nehemiah 6 is all about. Will you turn there with me to page 401 in your pew Bible? Here again, we find our hero, Nehemiah, the prototypical man of action who has an uncommon devotion to prayer as well. And up to this point in the story, the Jewish people have, also, have already faced a barrage of threats and fear tactics and ridicule to their monumental work of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, reestablishing their national identity. But here in chapter 6, the attacks become personal in nature. They center on Nehemiah himself. The Lord Jesus has said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And this has always been a strategy in warfare, both in the spiritual realm as well as in the natural. If you want to win the battle, shoot the officers. And if you want to stop the work in Jerusalem, paint a target on Nehemiah. In chapter 6, the personal attacks on Nehemiah come from both the outside in verses 1 through 9 and from the inside in verses 10 through 14. So we'll look at both of these in turn. In verse 1, we get a progress report on the wall. And we also find out that the same list of enemies we heard about in previous chapters are still at large. It says, when Sanballat who is the governor, boo, yes, who is the governor of Samaria, whose name literally means sin has given life. <laughs> and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in Hakafirim, in the plain of oh no. <laughs> and Nehemiah comments, but they intended to do me harm. Now this request to meet together, it sounds reasonable, right? And the invitation to dialogue from our enemies should not be lightly dismissed. But Nehemiah sees through it. He sees it as a plot to distract him from finishing the work at best, and at worst, a plot against his life. And if there's nothing else we learn from this sermon series, we should at least have it clear in our minds that when a man whose name means sin has given life asks you to come to a secret meeting with he and his posse in the plain of, oh no, don't fall for it. Don't do it. Did you know that sometimes a diplomatic approach is unjustified and unwise? Did you know that? Sometimes your enemy's intentions have already been made utterly plain, and it's just a ruse for buying time or buying you off or worse. So when Jesus' enemies come to question his authority in Luke 20, verse 2, he chooses not to answer their question, but to instead expose their hardness of heart. And when he sent out his own disciples to preach the word of the kingdom, he says not only that they should be as innocent as doves, but they should be as shrewd as serpents. Matthew 10, 16. And Nehemiah is a shrewd man, is he not? 
He says in verse 3, And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Here we see Nehemiah uh, exercising what we might call a holy stubbornness. He's refusing to be drawn away from the work that God had given him to do. His message to his enemies is simple. It's clear. He's not mincing words with them. He's saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. That might be the central line of the whole chapter. Brothers and sisters, are we, are we that convinced of the greatness of God's work? Or are we all too easily distracted? Have we gotten off track with the things that we know that God has given us to do? Do we begin to shrink back the moment that things get a little too stressful? A little too hard? The moment the world starts falsely categorizing us or, or lumping us in with the crazies on television? Who cares? Who cares? We need to learn to keep our eyes fixed on the work that the Lord has given us to do and shut out the noise. We need to learn that the Great Commission is not going to fulfill itself. God has called you. And we need to learn, and I say this to myself as well, that our Christian life is not about ticking the boxes of our worst critics. That sometimes we just have to tell them, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? As for Nehemiah, he keeps a laser-like focus. Verse 4 says, And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Four times they tried the same move. I think there's something spiritually dark that's fueling the persistent antagonism of the enemies of Jerusalem throughout this story, don't you? There's something diabolical at work here. It reminds me of a scene in the book Paralandra, which is part of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. In the book, uh, the temptation scene of the Garden of Eden is replayed on another planet called Paralandra with a new Eve called Tinadril. And the basic plot is that a man named Ransom travels to Paralandra in order to protect Tinadril from the temptations of the unman who has become possessed by the devil. And at first things seem to be going okay, but then Ransom comes to the horrible realization that the unman doesn't need sleep. The devil doesn't sleep, guys. That's a horrible realization. So while Ransom is sleeping, the devil keeps waking up Tinadril to try to poison her mind. And if that's not bad enough, once Tinadril herself falls asleep and he leaves her alone, the demon-possessed man turns his attention to Ransom and in a childish way begins taunting him. He calls him by name. He says, Ransom. And when Ransom says, what? The devil says, nothing. And he keeps it up all night. Ransom, 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 ransom. Until finally, Ransom loses his cool and shouts, what the devil do you want? <laughs> and the unmanned says again, nothing. It's a creepy scene. It's this sort of sinister combination of demonic temptation and schoolyard pestering. And there's something like that 
Something diabolical at work here in the persistent antagonism of Sanballat and his gang toward Nehemiah. And likewise, the devil doesn't want to leave us alone, guys. He wants us to engage with him, to sit with him at the table, to allow him to be the one who poses the questions. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's true. But sometimes before he flees, he'll get a little louder. When Nehemiah resists their pestering, they respond by turning up the heat in verse 5. It says, in the same way when Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in fact, uh, this, the fact that it was an open letter means that it was unsealed. And therefore, it was subject to be read at every stop along the way from, Samar uh, from Samaria to Jerusalem. Um, and this was basically an effective way of throwing public shade on someone, spreading rumors at the time. It was sort of the uh, ancient Twitter feed, right? And in verse 6, uh, uh, it says, In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it. In fact, he, re he reposted it. That you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're rebuilding the wall. Now, does that sound like a plausible rumor? Something that might make Artaxerxes like, what's going on down there? You bet. The letter continues, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. Again, does this sound like a plausible rumor? Absolutely. Even though it has no basis in reality, it's the kind of false narrative that could easily muddy up people's perceptions, even among his own kinsmen, about what Nehemiah is really up to in Jerusalem. You see how the lies of the devil work? And continuing in verse 7, the threats become less subtle. And now, says Sanballat, the king will hear of these reports. These reports, what reports? You mean the famous Samaritan blog, www.sanballatlies.com? He's the reports. But he says, so, so come now, let us take counsel together for a fifth time. So Sanballat makes the same appeal for a private meeting. And who knows, he may even believe his own press. Sanballat might be thinking, well, Nehemiah is trying to rebel and become their king. That's what I'd do if I were him. Maybe he's even convinced himself that he's doing his duty. He's doing his civic duty by Persia. By getting ahead of the curve and spreading these innuendos. Guys, a good lie always has a kernel of truth in it. A kernel of believability, just like the devil is a fallen angel. And most liars start out by lying to themselves. But Nehemiah resists and roundly rejects his accuser, both the devil and his puppet Sanballat. And it's a good reminder to us in the age of spin and false narratives and political correctness that one simple word of truth outweighs all the lies of the world. He responds in verse 8, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you have said have been done, for you are inventing them 
out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And then Nehemiah prays, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. The hands that they want to make weak, strengthen them. These lies are dangerous, but Nehemiah knows the truth. And his concern is for God's perspective on the matter, not with playing politics or micromanaging the perspective of his worst critics. Guys, if you're waiting for all your critics to be happy with you, keep waiting. Keep waiting. There's always going to be a boss, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member, even a fellow churchgoer that you simply cannot satisfy. In Jesus' own ministry, he pointed out that his critics wanted to speak out of both sides of their mouth. They chastised, chastised his cousin, John the Baptist, for fasting and abstaining from parties, while criticizing Jesus for keeping company with sinners. He says in Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Brothers and sisters, it's likely we will never satisfy the demands of our critics. Our focus needs to be on the justness of our deeds, not on managing their opinions. A few years ago, an Anglican bishop in Africa, whose name and country I will not mention, was confiding with a group of, group of us about the persistent attacks he faced from Western media outlets for simply standing firm on what the Bible teaches about human sexuality and marriage. He's been labeled a hateful bigot and intolerant, even though he explained from his heart that he hates no one, that he believes Christ died for all people, it is his critics, rather, who are intolerant of historic biblical Christianity. But the criticisms continued, and then a few years ago, 10 gay men in his region were abducted by Muslim extremists who were planning to execute them. And the local police who were in the pockets of the extremists refused to intervene. And this bishop, the one accused of bigotry, put himself on the line and used every ounce of influence he had to negotiate the release of these men. And to the surprise of no one, after this episode was over, the Western media didn't publish one positive article about him or his role in the rescue. Not one retraction of their previous accusations of bigotry. Brothers and sisters, can you see the hypocrisy of our age? the double standard in the media? Can you imagine if a Western liberal, even our own president, had negotiated the rescue of 10 gay men? He'd be lauded by every news outlet in the world. He'd be up for the Nobel Prize. If a liberal protest movement could boast of even one tangible victory like that, they'd be funded by every woke, wealthy person in the West. But this bishop who loved through actions and not simply through words is not even given the least commendation, not one retraction from his critics. And yet he didn't care. That wasn't even his reason for telling us the story. His point was that wisdom is justified by her deeds. 
that we need to persevere in doing what is right and in speaking the truth regardless of how it's received by the world. How about us? Are we committed to doing what's right regardless of how it's received or perceived? I'm not talking about taking a stand against the vaccine or touting self-serving conspiracy theories. I'm talking about a willingness to actually take heat to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah lived in the midst of controversy. He was virtually swimming in it at all times. He was up to his eyeballs in stress and accusations and false narratives, and yet he persisted in the work of God. And it's not just worldly critics that godly leaders like Nehemiah have to face. The second part of chapter 6, we see that attacks can come from the inside, from within the congregation as well. We will look at this scene more briefly. In verse 10 and following, one of the locally recognized prophets brought further confusion. Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, used a poetic couplet which was a common form of prophecy in the Old Testament, to advise Nehemiah to to fence himself off from the danger. He says, let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But Nehemiah rejects this entreaty, replying, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Now Tobiah's name is a Jewish name. And he had kind of blended himself with the nations. Notice that he's listed first here. He has people on the inside. So Nehemiah recognized that this so-called friend was actually in league with his foes. That Shemaiah's words of warning were actually a false prophecy. In fact, verse 14 mentions several false prophets and even one false prophetess by name who were all trying to tempt him in some way. But how could he be so sure They were false. What was the basis for Nehemiah rejecting the counsel of these brethren that seemed to be standing in the prophetic tradition of Israel? The text gives us two reasons. The first had to do with circumstantial discernment and the second with biblical fidelity. So first, Nehemiah knew from much prayer and from uh, the sovereign favor that God had shown him from the beginning that he was indeed called to build and finish the wall. Whatever the cost to his own life and limb, he knew that to display cowardice on his part would seriously undermine the morale of the Jewish people. So he asked, should such a man as I run away? We see the first reason is circumstantial discernment. But the second and more important reason that Nehemiah knew this to be a false prophecy is that it contradicted the word of God. The Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And thus, a true word from the Spirit will never contradict what the Bible has already said. Nehemiah was not a priest or a Levite, so according to the law of Moses, he had no business hiding out in the temple. This would be a form of sacrilege. That's why Nehemiah asks in verse 11, what man such as I could enter into the temple and live? 
So the temptation was to put fear of man above fear of God. As Nehemiah explains in verse 13, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Floyd McClung, who ministered alongside his family to prostitutes and pimps and drug dealers in the red light district of Amsterdam, once remarked that as long as we let fear stop the work of God, the devil will always know that he can play that card. And this is a man who knew it. This is a man who had his family directly threatened. He knew as long as the devil can play that card, he can always put a stop to the work of God. I want to end this morning with an example that's nearer to home. And um, at this point, I want to ask Zach to turn off the audio to the audio feed because this is not for public consumption. You got it? These kinds of personal attacks, fear tactics, false narratives can and will be used against you. There are still Sanballats and Tobias at large in this world. There are still, Lord have mercy, false brothers who will try to present pious reasons why you should do what you both know is wrong. At some point in your life, probably many points, the devil will use fear to try to derail you, to cause you to abandon the truth, to distract you from the obvious work that God has given you to do. And when that happens, you need to be prepared. What are the weapons that God gives us for such times? What Nehemiah shows us by example, the apostle Paul tells us plainly in Ephesians 6, verses 17 and 18, our weapons are the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and also praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. That is our call. That's what we need to be prepared, to walk in wisdom and in steadfast devotion to the Lord, so that when the time of trial comes, to say along with Nehemiah, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? Why should there be a gag order on the truth? Why should we not Walk in the light. Why should I leave it and come down to you? Amen.